So today I'm carrying on our teaching series um, of encounters with Jesus. And in the last few weeks, we've looked at lots of different encounters with Jesus. Uh, We've looked at um, encountering Zacchaeus up the tree, the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, Simon the Pharisee, the woman who washes Jesus' feet. Um, And we're looking at what we can learn from how Jesus interacts with these people and in those situations. Now, our Bible reading today shows a slightly different encounter that we're going to be thinking about, which is Jesus' encounter with the devil. Now, I don't know what you immediately thought of when you heard this passage. Uh, Maybe it conjured up images of last week at Halloween with people wandering around with horns and a forked tail. Uh, Maybe it got you thinking about your deepest temptation and the resolutions you might be making in January, because we can only make big resolutions in January, right? Um, Perhaps you've thought about the devil before in this passage, but you haven't really thought about it for a long time. Maybe you've done the Alpha course, and this reminds you of the session, How Can We Resist Evil, and the sort of fascinating conversations you have. Or, quite probably, there are a few of you in here who are a bit confused by the idea of the devil appearing in the Bible, slightly nervous about where this talk might be going, and are checking out where the exits are. Uh, Whatever position you're in, I hope that today we can learn a little bit more about Jesus from his example and experience the kingdom of God in all its goodness and its fullness. So I'm going to spend about half of this um, talk talking about kind of the context of the passage and thinking about why it might have occurred, um, a little bit about suffering and evil. And then the second half, we're going to look at Jesus' response to all that. So I'm mainly going to be thinking about chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, which is the last bit of our reading. But I included in it the last bit of chapter 3, where Jesus was baptized. This appears in three out of the four Gospels, um, which are the accounts of Jesus' life, and that it always appears together. I think this shows us the significance of both of these events, but also how kind of one does lead to the other. In verse 16, we hear, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. He had been anointed, This is his time. Jesus has been alive around 30 years, they think, at this point. We don't really know what he's been doing. But now he's been given the all clear, the license, the badge, the GPS tracker under his skin. No, wait, that's James Bond. But he's ready. He's ready to go, and his ministry has just begun. And then in verse 17, we get a declaration of who Jesus is. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is ready to go. It has been declared who he is, the Son of God. And before he has even done anything at all, he knows that in standing with God, he is loved and God is pleased with him. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we get, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read sentences like that in the Bible, I paraphrase them in my head to make them sound a bit more simple, um, or I just ignore it altogether. And I think for a long time, I hadn't really read that verse properly. I kind of thought, yep, Jesus was baptized, and he just wandered off into the desert casually for a little bit of alone time, and bam, the devil was there because he caught him unaware, and um, he was on his own, and that's where he was. And we'll get to that devil bit in a minute, don't worry. But first, like, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. Really? The Spirit actually led Jesus there? 
Why? What for? Surely the Spirit is meant to lead us into all goodness and nice things and away from the devil. What does it mean that the Spirit even led him there? So before I started anything else, I thought, let's delve into that and have a think about why that might be. So Matthew, who's the guy who wrote this gospel, is specifically writing to the Jewish people of the time, the Israelites, to try and show them that Jesus, this man, was actually the true Israelite, the one they'd been waiting for. Backing up to Deuteronomy, which is at the start of the Bible, um, Moses is giving a speech to these Israelites. Moses was the guy who led them out of slavery in Egypt, think Prince of Egypt, um, and he was reminding them that God had said, you are my chosen people, reminding them that he'd led them out of oppression, reminding them that he had led them through the wilderness, reminding them that he even gave them bread of heaven. I checked, we're not playing the Welsh at rugby for a good 16 weeks, so we, I can sing that one. Um, but he also reminds them that despite all of that, they stopped trusting God and made an idol out of gold as a calf. And Moses is saying, don't do it again, keep trusting. Now, sorry if you haven't read from Joshua through to Matthew, uh, but spoiler alert, they do do it again, and again, and again. But there are prophets that are continually prophesying, so messengers continually bringing messages from God that someone else is coming, someone who will be the true Israelite, the one that will not mess it up, the one that will do it right, the better and the truer one. Another spoiler, that person is Jesus. Even in that quote at his baptism, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, is taken from a mixture of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 verse 1, which is both in the Old Testament before Jesus was born. Matthew is trying to say, this is him. This is the one we've all been waiting for. So what does this have to do with why the Spirit led him into the desert? Well, some scholars think that it was testing to see if Jesus' call was true. Was he the true Israelite? Could he prove that he wasn't going to fail again like all the others? Some say it was preparation for his like, ultimate testing when Jesus had to go to the cross to die and be raised again. Could he go through with it? Some are saying that the testing was to secure his relationship with the Father, like checking a parachute before you go on a jump, checking that his relationship was ready for ministry. Terence Donaldson says, Matthew therefore presents Jesus as one who in his experience recapitulates the story of Israel. Like Israel of old, Jesus has been called by God out of Egypt to a life of humble obedience. Like Israel, this calling was put to the test in the wilderness. The hope of the story is that unlike Israel, Jesus will remain faithful where Israel was disobedient. I wonder if any Israelites listening to this story would have realized that's what he was saying. It's also really important in this that we get to see that Jesus was human. We get to see Jesus encountering temptations and testings. They don't think this was a one-off experience for Jesus encountering the devil, but that this happened more than once and that this is kind of an example of that. We are human and so is he. The fact that Jesus faced human needs, like being hungry, and human temptations um, is so essential when we're thinking about us trusting in our relationship with him. In the letter to the Hebrews, which was written to the early church, it said, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, 
who is unable to empathize with our weakness, for we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help us in time of need. So far in this passage, we have seen that Jesus is the true Israelite, the called one, the Messiah, and we've seen that he's been tested in this human way. But just before we look at what we can learn from Jesus, we will get there, I promise, uh, we just need to have a little think about how the Spirit could lead him into something negative and who this devil guy is. Now, I'm not sure if you can quite tell yet or if it looks like I just ate one too many pies, uh, but I'm 21 weeks pregnant. Thanks. It's not been a completely simple ride for us, and we're really excited to be on this journey now, and we do thank God daily for the blessing. But you'd think growing a baby, being fruitful and multiplying, bringing new life into this world, would be right up the creator of the universe's street. He loves making new things, so surely I'm like actually in God's blessing. Surely this is the moment where my life should be goodness and flourishing and I'm the most righteous in his eyes. So why, on a holiday to the Mecca for all whiskey drinkers, the Isle of Isla, could I not have a dram? Why, when my husband Josh and his family went in the jacuzzi and the sauna at the weekend, did I have to sit on the side like a lemon? We've basically done all our holidays in one go. Um, why can I not open the fridge while without feeling ravenous and nauseous all at the same time? And why can't I just have a nice glass of wine with a chunk of brie and a bit of parma ham? I'm mocking to make a point. Growing a human is intense, and it doesn't matter about those restrictions. But my point is this. Sometimes in life, we think we're doing exactly the right thing. We've followed God's commands. We think we're doing what he'd like best. We are in his path for us. And yet things still seem tough or difficult. Suffering still happens. And then we get confused. And I think that's because we sit in this basic idea that good and righteous people get good and easy lives. And that bad or lazy people get difficult lives and suffering. That viewpoint exists in society and it exists in the church today. Perfect people like Jesus should have perfect and easy lives, right? And only when we mess up do we get temptation, suffering, and hardship. Because it has to be the result of what someone did, right? The best book in the Bible to help us understand this is the book of Job. This is a bit of wisdom literature written to help us think about the issue of why bad stuff happens to good people. Now, I won't spoil it, but it doesn't really have a conclusion, other than it's just not very simple. God did not make this universe so that good and righteous people get good things, and those who make mistakes get bad things, and that's their own fault. It's just not that easy. And if we have too view, simple a view of all of that, we can get very confused when we try and tackle the rest of the Bible. When we read, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to get tested, we can struggle because Jesus is perfect and is living in his calling. We've just seen that at the baptism. So why should he be getting anything but perfect righteousness thrown back at him? I don't know if you've had any experiences like that. Even tonight, for example, although I felt like this was exactly the right thing I should be speaking on, I felt super uneasy about it. Yesterday, I had a bit of a panic attack about it all, which doesn't really happen to me. And I felt like I was the worst speaker in the world, and everything I was going to speak on would be rubbish. Trusting the God of this complicated universe can be really confusing. 
Imagine if I left it there. Preach done by everyone. Uh, but don't worry, Jesus does have something to save on it, and he has been where we are today. He's been human in this complicated world too. And he has shown us some of his mechanisms for coping with what is being thrown at us. But just one last thing. This devil guy, what does he have to do with it? Suffering and evil is a really difficult topic. And if you want to go into a lot more detail about it, please get in touch with us and we'll recommend some reading or some listening to kind of get to grips a bit more with it. But in brief, you can get four kinds of views of evil. The first view is a denial of evil. Evil doesn't exist. There isn't really such thing as good or evil. It's just, this is it. The second view is monism. That is, everything is God. Good stuff is God, but bad stuff is God too. Thirdly, dualism. That there is good and there is evil, but they're pretty equal. And they're kind of in competition with each other. So karma would be like an example of that. And finally, you get the Bible's view. The Bible's view isn't dualism. Evil does not have the same power as good. It isn't monism. God is good. He is not evil. But the Bible also doesn't deny evil. It talks about the world being broken. It talks about the flesh or our human choices choosing to freely ignore God's wisdom. And it talks about the devil or the spiritual side of life that's not good but evil. We can see evil or suffering in so many ways around us. We can see um, suffering individually or on a socially systemic level. We can see it inside or caused by us, and we can see it outside or not caused by us. We can see natural suffering, and we can also see supernatural suffering. All of those things can be summed up in the world, the flesh, and the devil. Perhaps one of those is more hard for you, one of those that's harder for you to understand than another. I know the idea of spiritually bad things as well as spiritually good things is not an easy concept to understand. But even Jesus acknowledges it. He teaches us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And he talks about a thief coming to steal and destroy, but him coming so that we may live life to the full. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, has written a lot of stuff on this subject. One of his quotes is this. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this is also God. The Christian replies, don't talk nonsense, for Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. This isn't an equal battle. Jesus has won, and this world will be put right. But for now, the Bible teaches us we still live in a time where the world is broken. We still have the pull to live outside of God's wisdom, and there are still spiritual forces at play that aren't good. Now, to go into the detail about the differences between when the Bible uses devil, Satan, demons, fallen angels, it's probably for another time. So for now, I'm just going to use the term devil, which is what our passage uses um, as a negative force. But like I say, if you are interested in this or want to know a little bit more, do get in touch. 
But for now, we are going to delve into Jesus' response to all of this and how he, what he does when he encounters evil in the world. So we have seen that Jesus is solidly on the path of his calling as the Messiah as he goes from his baptism into the desert. We have seen that Jesus, despite being perfect, doesn't get an easy ride, even if we're not quite sure why. And we've kind of thought about the fact that we live in that reality too. And we've acknowledged that there is suffering in this world, including negative spiritual forces at play. And we know that Jesus is human, like us, so we can learn from what he does. So what does he do when he's confronted with these three challenges? Let's have a look at each of them in turn. So the first one, starting in verse 2, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What a challenge. I mean, if you've ever fasted or gone on any sort of diet, this seems like such the obvious test if you are hungry. But let's see what the devil is trying to do here. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt his beliefs and to see God through his hungry middle-of-the-desert glasses. We're seeing him do what he tried to do as the snake in the Garden of Eden at the start of the Bible by saying, did God really say, if you are the Son of God, surely one rock turned into bread won't make a difference. I wonder what that's like for you. Whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, we can be tempted to doubt our beliefs all of the time. Surely just joining in with one bit of gossip at work won't hurt. They might even like me better. Surely God didn't mean actually to give that much money. I mean, I live in Bristol. Does he know how much housing costs these days? Surely one more drink won't hurt. I can't let people think Christians are boring. Surely God won't mind if I wait till tomorrow to stop watching those videos. Surely God didn't actually mean what he said when. The devil is also specifically attacking Jesus' identity as the Son of God, just after he has been declared at his baptism. Sometimes we can have attacks on our identity as well, especially when we're stepping out in faith. In August, I gave up my job. I felt God calling me to take some time out before jumping into something new. And around the same time, I suddenly felt flooded all of the time with memories of some of the worst things I'd ever done. The things I regretted the most in my life and a feeling that why on earth would God use me to do anything and I've made a massive mistake to believe that he'd want to. How does Jesus do it? How does Jesus, when at that point that self-gratification over a bit of bread could easily win, does his obedience to God take priority? How does he hold on to his identity God has given him rather than the one that the devil is trying to tell him? Jesus relies on his relationship and his trust in God with his knowledge of scripture, the Bible. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knows from experience that it's not just what our body needs that counts, but to live off what God has said. How often do you let the word of God sink in? Do you prioritize it over food? I'm a kind of three meals a day kind of girl. The idea, but do I think about that with God? Do I miss the Bible as much as I miss food? Do you sit with the word of God daily and learn what it has to say about your identity as a child of God 
So when you're attacked, you have your defense. Back in August, when I was feeling attacked about my choice, I prayed with someone, and they gave me the verses from Ephesians 6, where Paul is writing to the church and gave them an image of armor to protect against attack from earthly and spiritual forces. It really helped me to pray with those verses, and gradually I felt all the lies in my head disappear as the identity Jesus had given me um, came back in. The Bible is beautiful, and I'd urge you to get to know its incredible message. Let's have a look at Jesus' second challenge. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So in this test, which most people think is more of a vision than he actually got carried to a temple, the devil is being the tempter. He's using Jesus' own defense against him, the Bible, and asking him to test God's love and call. I don't know if you do this in normal relationships, testing whether the the relationship is still there. Maybe in that first bit of dating where you like purposely don't text them back just to check they'll text you again. Maybe it's a teenager who purposely pushes the boundaries just to check you'll still enforce them. Or a baby who cries just to check you'll come back. Our trust in relationships is reformed when we communicate. We don't need to test God's love. He loves us. He claims to be better than the best parent and loves us unconditionally. And Jesus knew this to be true. He quotes back, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. But it's not always easy to just blindly trust. But we can pray. Do you communicate your worries to God? Or do you just test him to check he'll be faithful? When the brokenness of the world appears in our lives, do you ask him to teach you to trust him? Or do you just prefer to keep some things under your control? Finally, Jesus' third challenge. In verse 8, it said, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The devil has tried to get Jesus to doubt the truth and has tried to tempt Jesus to test the truth. Now the devil is downright trying to deceive Jesus as to what he can do. The devil doesn't have the authority to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. But he tries his best, tries to um, tempt Jesus away from his call to be obedient to God's call. And this isn't always as obvious as it seems. Here, if Jesus actually took what the devil was offering to rule the world, maybe that would be the best thing for the world. Jesus in charge, Jesus turning that offer down on the outside could actually be seen as a failure. This can sometimes happen to us. There's that really cheesy saying, isn't there? Just because it's a good thing doesn't mean it's a God thing. But that's true. Knowing what God is asking us to do and what just seems like a good thing um, is really hard sometimes. And it's even harder when we feel attacked by the negatives of this world, whether that's broken people or negative spiritual forces. That initiative might get loads of people to church, but is it what God's calling us to do, and do they get to know Jesus? That promotion seems amazing, but does it mean compromising on values or our time with Jesus? That resting technique of binging on Netflix for five hours might seem 
seem great, but is it truly restorative for your soul? Referring back to me giving up my job in July, I've had to think about this decision quite a lot. It's been a journey, and I've learned lots. I've had to say no to quite a lot of things that seemed like they should be right, and I've said yes to things that didn't seem on the outside quite right, but felt like the God thing. I've had to battle with my earthly identity as well as my spiritual one. I had a great career, and now I'm pregnant, so going back to work right now is probably not going to happen, but that's probably the right thing. But I can't just stop like that. I'm a feminist. Surely if I believe in this choice for women and all those who fought before me, I should be working, not giving up this choice that they gave to me. The world is just going to see me as a woman who gave up. Or maybe the church is going to see me as someone who was all for God's call and now is palmed off to have a kid. I can't let that happen. I've got to prove I'm still someone else. I know I've been guilty in the past of not understanding people's sacrifices and just assuming they've opted for the easy way. What if other people think that of me? On my midwife notes, my occupation is down as homemaker, as I didn't think the appointment time was long enough for them to write, waiting for God to tell me what to do, without being referred to another part of the hospital. <laughs> I've nothing against being a homemaker as a thing, but for me, that makes me shudder. Just because from the outside, from the worldly perspective, it could look like I've made the wrong choice or an odd choice. And maybe like Jesus, if I'd chosen to do something else, it could have been better. I'm pretty confident I'm doing what God has asked me to do, even if that is I don't really know. When given this choice by the devil, Jesus says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knew what this meant for him what God had called him to do, and how he was to serve God. And he wasn't going to let any other offer sway him from that. I think this is because Jesus spent time in God's presence, getting to know him and getting to know God's call for him. Josh is going to be thinking a little bit more about that next week, so I won't spoil it now. But in each of these three tests, Jesus relied and rested on his relationship with the Father, it wasn't about knowing the rules and regs or just being able to quote the Bible or just sort of knowing what was best, but it was knowing what was important in their relationship, not having to test the trust he had with the Father and knowing what his call was from God. Jesus knew the scriptures. He clearly spoke to God about his feelings, and he also listened to hear what God was calling him to do. Against the evil of this world, our best defense is the trust and in the truth and our relationship with God, deep in our heart. Tim Keller says, our heart is the source of our fundamental commitments, hopes and trust. And from the heart flow our thinking, our feelings and our actions. What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire and the will carries out. Even if you think your mind thinks one thing, your heart can tell a different story when challenged or in heartache. So practice this walk with Jesus. We have seen today from this passage that just being good doesn't keep evil at bay. We've explored this idea that the world is broken and there are negative spiritual forces. And we've seen how Jesus used his deep and practiced relationship with God as a defense when they appeared. Remember, we're not in an ultimate battle to defeat evil. Jesus has already done that through his death and resurrection on the cross. Our success in this doesn't determine whether God loves us or not. We're not trying to prove anything to him. 
We have been adopted into his family through simple faith in him. Jesus' grace won that for us. But Jesus promises life to the full with him. Maybe you've never thought about the idea of faith and this life of fullness, not just being about that one-off decision, but about a continual act of living in relationship with Jesus through his word, through prayer, and through trust in his call, through good times and bad. So I challenge you today, give it a go. It's not always easy, but it's incredibly amazing. And the wonderful thing is, we don't have to do this journey on our own. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus at baptism. The Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit is constantly with him during ministry. It even says in verse 11 of our reading, and then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Well, I definitely don't have time to go into angels today. Maybe save that for another one. But we all have this privilege to ask the Spirit to walk with us, to show us how to build that relationship with God, to become that solid foundation. And you can do that here tonight. We can ask the Spirit to fill us and to lead us in that relationship. And if we all take up this call to know our Bibles better, to communicate with Jesus more, and to practice trusting in what God has called us to do in the power of his spirit, imagine how we could see the kingdom of God transform in the lives of those around the city. Why don't I pray? Jesus, thank you so much that even though this world is broken and there is evil and suffering around us, that you have defeated that that you won that battle on the cross. And God, we pray as we walk this life um, with you, that you will um, inspire us by your spirit to know how we can trust in you more and lean on your understanding and be filled with the spirit to do that. Amen.